we continue our study in this very different but incredibly magnificent account of the life of Christ, the people that he encountered, the lives that were changed. And as you remember from last week where Jesus was coming back to Jerusalem for a feast, he ventured to the pool of Bethesda and there encountered a man who had been sick for 38 years and who had waited helplessly for this superstitious healing to occur if he could be the first one into the water when the supposed angel of the Lord would stir it. This man who has been saved from this physical bondage has been set free. Jesus has given to him the instruction to take his mat and to walk. And he was completely healed at the very moment that Jesus declared to him this command to get up. And as this man was walking with his mat, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw what he was doing, were angry with him that he was quote-unquote working on the Sabbath day. And at that point, the animosity between the Pharisees and Jesus began to fan a flame that would culminate in his eventual crucifixion. So the Jews, what we need to understand is that the Jews held the Sabbath in such high regard that any violation of it was seen as an affront to the person and to the work of God. It was nearly blasphemous to violate the Sabbath as the Jews understood it and tried to enforce it. But the Sabbath that they created was not the Sabbath that God had created. As I reminded you last week, the religious leadership had created 39 different categories of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath day. And so anything that could be considered a part of someone's job was deemed working on the Sabbath. Of course, they found ways around those strict rules that they created when it suited them, which is why Jesus often referred to the Pharisees as the hypocrites. They would not do the things that they held others accountable for. So foundational to the work that Jesus performed on the Sabbath was not only in his proper understanding of what the Sabbath was for, but for the fact that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That was the other side of the coin that made the, the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees untenable, is that not only is he the Lord of the Sabbath, but he violated the Sabbath that they held so near and dear to their hearts. So this conflict that began at the Pool of Bethesda will continue to escalate throughout the ministry of Jesus. And so in response to this confrontation over this man who had been healed and was instructed to take his mat and to go on his way, we see now the response that Jesus gives. It goes all the way to verse 47, but we're only going to look at verses 17 through 24 today. We'll look at the claims that Christ has made about himself. So follow along, and as a segue, we're going to pick up verse 16 in John's commentary on what was taking place in Jesus' life at that moment. For this reason, for the healing of this sick man and the fact that he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus was healing on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but he answered them. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. 
For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. We're going to look at this simply in the five statements that Jesus has made about himself these claims that he has made about himself. And what John does not do is John does not record for us any statements made by the Pharisees to Jesus. It only records the monologue of Jesus' response to the persecution that was coming against him at the hands of the Pharisees. Now that word persecute means to put to flight, to pursue. The Greek phraseology here implies that this was taking place continually, meaning that the Pharisees were constantly pursuing Jesus to attack him, to attack the work that he did, to attack the teaching and these statements that he has made about himself. So he makes these five claims that will clearly describe who he is, and it sets the table, if you will, for the ongoing battle that Jesus is going to have with the Jewish leadership during his ministry. The first claim that Jesus makes about himself is this, that he is equal to God in his person. He is equal to God in his person. And oh, by the way, if you ever want to encounter somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God or claimed to be equal to the Father, just start reading through the Gospel of John. These, five, these seven or eight verses state incredibly clear who Jesus claimed to be. Verse 17, He, Jesus, answered them, the Pharisees, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. When Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I myself is working, He is highlighting that the issue here is the Sabbath. The issue for the religious, for the religious leadership is that Jesus is violating the tenets of the Sabbath that they have created. And what the Pharisees have failed to understand, and what Jesus makes very clear throughout His ministry, is this, the Sabbath was instituted for man's benefit, not for God's. You see, it is the tail wagging the dog when you reverse the intent that God has or you reverse the purposes that God has in the lives of His people. Jesus would say in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. 
So in order to understand the Sabbath, let's go all the way back to Exodus when the Sabbath was instituted to see exactly what God said to the nation of Israel. Beginning in chapter 20, verses 9 through 11. Six days you shall labor labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now what you and I fail to understand, and what the Jews of Jesus' day failed to remember, is that the Jews were coming out of an of a 400 and maybe 30 year period of slavery to the nation of Egypt. If you remember the account, before God raised Moses up to set His people free, the Pharaoh was intensifying the work that the Israelites were held accountable for. You remember that? Increased the quota, took away the goods and made them go get the stuff themselves. And so the Jews had come out of this period of bondage to the nation of Egypt where they were working 12, 14, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, and they had no time to worship. So the Sabbath was instituted for man so that man would have a day to worship the Lord. The Sabbath was not instituted for God. The Sabbath day of rest, didn't apply to God. Whatever restrictions the religious leadership placed on the Sabbath, they didn't apply to God. Going back into Genesis and looking at the creation account, which the Sabbath day rest is principled on. We read these verses. These verses in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So there's a couple things we pick up out of these verses in Genesis. Letter A. His work of creation was completed, but God's work is not completed. So the specific act of creation was completed in six days, and on the seventh day God rested. But God's work in general was not done. Now there are some who believe that God created the universe, and He wound the big celestial clock, if you will, And it's just ticking away and God has disappeared and He's just sitting back at a distance watching creation implode and explode upon itself. But that in fact is not what God has done. God rested on the seventh day of His creation, but He has not stopped working. He continues to work. The work of redemption, Jesus coming to this earth and going to the cross to die for the sins of of the elect is an indication that God's work is not completed. So the first thing that we see here is that the specific act of creation is done, but not God's work in general. Letter B, after creation, God rested. He rested because He is done. He did not rest because He was tired. Right? God doesn't get tired. 
He doesn't get weary. He doesn't get hungry. He doesn't get overwhelmed. He doesn't get distracted. God created this universe, and when it was completed, He rested from the work of creation. Not because He was worn out, He was exhausted, but because He was done. The prophet Isaiah proclaims in chapter 40, verse 28, Do you not know... Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? Now, you know, that's good news for you and I. Because regardless of what's going on in this universe that God has created, He's never too tired to listen to His children cry out to Him. He's never too tired to intervene for His people to bless them, to rescue them, to comfort them, to encourage them. God never gets tired. Do you get tired? Do you ever feel like you're overworked? Do you ever feel like you need some rest? Oh yeah. What are the consequences in our lives when we are overworked? What is the byproduct of not protecting our schedule in such a way that we can prioritize the things that are most valuable to our lives. I had a good friend back in Columbus. He's a young professional, very involved in the political world, travels all over the country, and meets with senators and congressmen and other people who are running for office. And about five or six times a year, his schedule gets so overloaded that he can almost predict the day he's going to get physically sick because he has exhausted himself. You see, the consequences of overwork is there's no time to worship God. There's no time to be in God's Word. There's no time to lay ourselves before the Lord. There's no time to develop our family. There's no time to serve Him. And so God institutes the Sabbath for man's benefit, not for His. last thing we learn from this creation account is that He blessed the Sabbath and He sanctified it. He set it apart to distinguish it from other days. Sunday, our Sabbath, is the day that we set aside as a day of rest to gather together to worship the Lord. We set it apart. This is usually a very different day from any other day in the week because we intentionally gather in God's house with His people to worship Him, to come under the corporate teaching of His Word. That doesn't mean it's the only time we do it, but it's a unique day in the life of the church and God's people. God does not stop working on the Sabbath. He is continually doing the works of mercy and love and grace and forgiveness He continues to heal and restore and extend salvation on any day of the week. There's never a day that God says, too busy, too tired, please leave me alone. Just doesn't happen. So Jesus' healing work on the Sabbath set the Jewish religious system upside down on its head because it violated their man-made tradition as something that was superior to the initial command that was given by God. So God is still working even on the Sabbath. And man's rules about the Sabbath don't apply to God. And Jesus is also working on the Sabbath just like God, which makes Jesus equal to God. 
Now, again, John does not record the dialogue that is going on between Jesus and the Pharisees, but he adds this very interesting note of a commentary, if you will, about this encounter in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. When the Jews heard what Jesus said in verse 17, they understood clearly what Jesus was saying about Himself. There was no veiled meaning. It wasn't a hidden parable. It was a blatant claim by Jesus to be equal with God because as just as God worked on the Sabbath, so does the Son, and I am the Son. And I will continue to work on the Sabbath. Not only did they want to kill Him for violating the Sabbath that they had created, But they wanted to kill him because he claimed to be equal with God. That was blasphemous and they would not stand for it. Number two, not only is he equal to God in his person, he is equal to God in his works. Look at what it says here in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Rather than trying to correct the Jews' potential misunderstanding about Jesus' claims, he goes on to make it even more abundantly clear. Anytime you hear Jesus say, truly, truly, it is the same thing as you hearing someone else say today, I solemnly swear. It's like a kid who says, I swear to God. I am making an oath, a promise before God. And this is what Jesus says is truly, truly, I solemnly swear to you as an oath before the Lord. And this individual claim here tells us three things in this regard. Letter A, the Son can do nothing of Himself. He only imitates what He sees the Father doing. Well, the implication of that is very clear. If Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath, He is only doing that because that is what He is seeing the Father do. And because He is the Son, He is going to imitate the Father because He can't do anything all by Himself. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. If the Father doesn't do it, then the son won't either. I remember this funny video I saw this one time. little kid about three or four years old had a plastic golf club and a plastic golf ball and was in his living room and he swung and he hit the ball and he threw the club and he uttered out a curse word. Why did he do that? Because he was imitating his father that he heard do the same thing. Jesus heals on the Sabbath because that's what He sees the Father do. He says, I can't do anything on my own. I don't have the authority to do anything that I don't see the Father 
doing already. Jesus will say in John chapter 10.30 that we'll look at down the road, I and the Father are one. And He's saying the exact same thing here. There is a perfect harmony between the Father and the Son. It is characterized in the joint working of the Father and Son in such a way that it manifests the essence of the unity that they share in being the same person. We get so hung up on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and we think of them as three entirely different entities. We have such a difficult time wrapping our minds around the fact that these three expressions are simply one in essence. Whatever the Father does, that's what He shows the Son and that's what the Son does. Whatever the Father and the Son are doing, that's what the Holy Spirit does. There is absolute unity in the person of God and Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. Because they are one in being, one eternal God, to see Christ act is to see God Himself act. And so what we can say is, whatever we have heard Jesus say, whatever we have heard Jesus do, by virtue of this claim, it is exactly what the Father has already done. Letter B. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things. Now, Jesus uses the Father's love for Him as an expression of their oneness. You know, we read this in our Bible that Jesus is the one and only. He is the only begotten. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God. But Jesus is the one and only begotten of the Father. And there is this unique oneness that exists with them. And that's what Jesus is expressing when He says the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things. One of the peculiar things about this is the word love here is not the word agapao, which, which expresses choice and will. It is instead the Greek word phileo, which means deep feelings and warmth. God doesn't love the Son out of choice or will. He loves the Son with deep affection, with deep emotion, with deep feeling. It's what made Gethsemane and the cross so difficult for the Father and the Son is because of Jesus' taking on the sin of the world and the Father not being able to look on the Son, there is this momentary separation of this feeling of affection and warmth and the humanity of Jesus that He sweats like drops of blood knowing what is before Him. There isn't a separation, but in Jesus' humanity, He feels like there is a separation. It's the only place in the New Testament where the word phileo is used to express the Father's love for the Son. The present tense of the verb loves indicates that it is an eternally uninterrupted and all-knowing love that leaves no room for unawareness, making it impossible for Jesus to not know God's will, whether about the Sabbath or about anything else. There is such a connectedness between the Father and the Son that is implied in this expression that the Father loves the Son that Jesus means, I know exactly 
what the Father wants me to do because He shows me and I just know it because of the oneness and the love that exists within the Trinity. Letter C, Jesus says that the Father will show him greater works. You know what that means. Is that what they're seeing in this crippled man who has been sick for 38 years, who's walking with his pallet, hang on, you haven't seen anything yet. If this is making you wonder and amazement, you better buckle up because the ride is going to get very interesting. Not only would he heal this crippled man, but he would eventually raise the dead and he himself would also be raised from the dead to conquer sin and death once for all, for all of his children. They will one day truly marvel at the work that God is going to show the Son to do as he imitates his Father. Now, the third claim that we see in our passage here is that he is equal to God in his power and sovereignty. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. This is a preview of the work that He will be doing in the future in this reference of giving life and being Lord over death. So there's two examples of this we see. Letter A, that He will raise the dead and give them life. And that is an implication physically... And it is a metaphor for what Jesus is going to do spiritually. These are things that only God can do. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 32, See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides Me. It is I who put put to death and give life. The Pharisees understand very well about what Jesus means when He says that He will raise the dead and give them life. Spiritually, we've already seen that Jesus has said in John chapter 4, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is the Lord over the living. He is the Lord over the dead. He has the ability to put to death and to give life because He is equal to God in His power and He will give life to whom He chooses because He is equal to God in His sovereignty. Letter B, He gives life to whom He chooses. Unlike Elijah and Elisha and Peter and Paul who acted as God's representatives and raising people from the dead and do it through the power of God, Jesus does it to whom He wishes and He does it from His own power remembering that He is the source of life. He has life in Himself. His life-giving power doesn't come from someone or something else. It comes from Him. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. He gives life on His own authority and exact agreement with the Father. We're going to read this very shortly in our study. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Woven in that is a doctrine of election that only the ones that God gives to Jesus will come to Him. And whoever that is that comes to Him, He will not cast them out. 
It's great news for you and I knowing that when we come to Him, we come to Him with assurance of our security for all of our life on this earth and for all of our eternity with God. The fourth claim that Jesus makes here is that He is equal to God in His judgment. This must have been a startling claim for the religious leadership to hear when He said it. Verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. If that isn't a confrontational claim, there isn't another one in the Bible. Only the Son has the right to judge because... That right has been given to him by the Father. And because they are equal, and Jesus only does what the Father shows him, there's complete unity in to whom the Son would issue judgment. All judgment has been given to Jesus. Let's read these verses together. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 6-9. through for, all, for after all, it is only just for God to repay affliction excuse me, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Paul had no misconception about who was the one that owned the right to judgment. We read in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because all are under judgment. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man, capitalized man, whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. There is no doubt about to whom Paul is referring. He refers to none other than the Son. What is, what is of critical importance to you and I today is to know this. What we do with Jesus has eternal consequences in our lives because He is the judge. It's not your mama. It's not your papa. It's not your grandparents. It's not your pastor. It's not your best friend. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. People fear what man can do and what man can say. We fear what the government might do. We fear what might happen if the economy collapses. But people need to know that they need to fear Jesus like they fear nothing else in their lives because He and He alone is the judge. Lastly, number five, the fifth claim that Jesus makes here. He is equal to God in His honor. Verse 23, So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So the purpose in entrusting all of God's works and the right to judge, giving that to Jesus, is so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Do you see the significance here in what Jesus is saying? 
Since Jesus is equal to God in His person and in His works and in His power and sovereignty and in His judgment, it is only fitting that there would be equal honor between the Father and the Son. If you don't honor the Son, then you do not honor the Father. It doesn't matter how people package their religion. If it doesn't center around Jesus, then it does not honor the Father. It doesn't matter how moral it is. It doesn't matter how polished it appears. It doesn't matter how right it sounds. It doesn't matter how many thousands or millions of people believe in it. If our religion doesn't center around Jesus, then it does not honor the Father. One author has said this, It is not up to a man to decide that he will honor the one or the other. It is either both or neither. In religious circles, it is too easy for unbelief to contemplate God, but not the Son. Knowledge of one implies knowledge of the other. Hatred of one implies hatred of the other. Denial of the one implies denial of the other. The Pharisees understood exactly what Jesus was saying when He made these claims. Willingly or unwillingly, everyone will eventually obey the Father's command to honor Christ. Willingly or unwillingly. These great verses in Philippians chapter 2. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is the day that will come when those who have denied Him and rejected Him and truly blasphemed Him will honor the Father by acknowledging the reality of who the Son is. We're all going to do that willingly or unwillingly. Now, verse 24 contains a wonderful invitation that we should not miss here. Again, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, the Father, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, he's not talking about physically hearing with the ear, but the person that listens with the intentionality of the heart. Not to intellectually believe in our minds factual things about Jesus, but believes with a life-surrendering faith that He is who He said He is. And as we sung moments ago, all I have is Christ. To believe in the Father who sent Jesus means to believe in the One He sent. Those who place their trust in Jesus have eternal life. They will be spared from His judgment and will be ushered into eternal life just as those who reject Him will be ushered into an eternal separation from the Father and from His glory forever and forever and forever. Make no mistake about it, there is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. He Himself said in Luke chapter 11, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality. 
There is no fence to ride when it comes to the claims that Jesus has made about himself. Those who accept him for who he is, God incarnate in human flesh, as the redeemer of mankind, placing their faith in him, they will be saved from their sins through Jesus alone. But those who believe him to be anything other than who he truly is will one day face his judgment. It's a sobering reminder of the eternity that is in the balance for so many people around us. It's also a great celebration of the great work that God has done in allowing us to be his children. When you think about the claims that Christ has made about himself, we often think, well, yeah, that's great. I know who he is and I've been saved in Jesus, so I can just, you know, I can just rest and take it easy, right? No, we live our lives in light of the truth of who he really is. And what does that mean for our lives? Does it mean we just take our salvation, we stick it in our back pocket and just go on? Or do we live our lives in light of the salvation that God has given to us? striving to honor Him and serve Him and please Him all the days of our lives, knowing that He has spared us from His judgment. Would you pray with me? Father, for the 10, 20, 30 years or so that we've been saved and have known who You are, I just pray that we would be brought into humility, recognizing that the power and the majesty and the splendor that is in God came into the world that He created so that we could know You. It's an overwhelming reality, Father. We we thank You for the work that You've done on our behalf through Christ. We thank You for the gift of salvation that You've given to us. And Father, I pray that You would help us to be more aware of the opportunities that You give to us to share with others who exactly Jesus is. If we do nothing more than just read these verses, we will have gone a long way in helping clarify what our enemy wants to make very confusing. So Father, I pray that you give us a tender heart for the salvation that we know, that you would give us a burden for those who do not know you, and that we would live our lives rightly before you as we are reminded of who you are. Father, thank you for the cleansing that is ours. As often as we fail you, as often as we forget, as often as we choose to do our own thing. Thank you that you're never tired, you're never weary, you're never unable to provide for us what we need as your children. God, we thank you for that. I pray that would be a motivation for us to strive to honor you. Accept our time of worship. And bless our hearts as we sing to the great God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.